So let's say I, I want to quit smoking and I know smoking is bad for me, that it increases my risk of heart disease, cancer, many other uh, things I'd, I'd rather not have. But when it comes to today, I'm thinking, gosh, I've tried this before and I'm gonna have this awful nicotine withdrawal, I'm gonna have a horrible headache, I'm gonna really feel terrible. So maybe I'll just wait till tomorrow and tomorrow will be a better day to try this. And when I'm weighing the future, which I'm heavily discounting, versus the present, which I'm not discounting, then the present almost always wins. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the podcast, Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry, and I'm the host of Revision Path, an award-winning weekly interview podcast that showcases the world's best black designers, developers, and digital creatives. If you're looking to get inspired, then tune in each week for in-depth conversations that explore the creative journey, including the processes, thoughts, and motivations behind these awesome creators shaping the future of art, design, and technology. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And today I'm bringing the conversation I had with Kevin Volp, MD. PhD. Kevin and I are med school friends, and we overlapped here in Philadelphia, then in Boston for residency training, now back in Philadelphia. We reconnected about a year ago at our virtual med school reunion. I told him a little bit about the podcast, asked if he'd be willing to join, and well, the rest is history. So a deep dive into Kevin, who is a world-renowned behavioral economist and a distinguished professor of internal medicine. He directs the CHIBE Lab. CHIBE is an acronym. It stands for Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. An adjacent part of the CHIBE Lab is the Nudge Unit, and you're going to hear about the Nudge Unit, and hey, what a great name. He's a distinguished professor at the Perlman School of Medicine, that's the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and of healthcare management at the Wharton School. In summary, Kevin's work focuses on developing and testing innovative ways of applying insights from behavioral economics to improve patient health behaviors and to increase value in the health system. This is by influencing provider performance. That's me, the clinician, the emergency doctor. Let's get to the conversation where I've asked Kevin to give us the basics. What is behavioral economics 101? What is behavioral economics? Sure. Well, I came at this from the standpoint of being an economist, and if you ask the same question to a psychologist, they'd give you a slightly different set of definitions. But most economists think about behavioral economics as economics enhanced by insights from psychology, where in essence, in traditional economics, we're taught that people are rational expected utility maximizers meaning that people can accurately estimate the probabilities of different things that can happen to them. They project into the future and estimate how good or how bad they'd feel about different outcomes. And then through some process of backwards induction, they figure out which choice path has the highest net present value. What we've realized through a lot of careful work in behavioral economics over the past few decades is people aren't very good at estimating probabilities. They're not very good at trading off future benefits and immediate gratification. There's all sorts of issues in terms of how well people can project the future. And there's a whole set of these decision errors which basically reflect 
insights from psychology into how people make decisions. So people focus much more on the immediate gratification than the future. People are very susceptible to how choices are framed, the order in which they're presented, how many choices there are, whether one of them had been preset as a default. And there's all sorts of issues like that in terms of how people make decisions, which suggests we're very far from the neoclassical economic models in terms of both describing behavior and perhaps in this context, more importantly, how we might try to influence what people actually do. Yeah. Are there three things you're like, Risa, the three things I've learned, these three things influence human behavior. And is that what you just outlined for us? Yeah. Well, th there's clearly more than three things that influence human behavior, but, but we could start with a short list of some of the most important. I think the first is really immediate gratification. You know, it's very hard for any of us if we're presented with something really tempting to eat that's high calorie, tasty, smells good, high fat, to not want to at least try it. And then, of course, once you try it, it'll probably taste good and you'll want to have more. And all the considerations you might have made if that tempting item were not in front of you uh, go out the window, you know, about how, well, this will affect my weight, this will affect my my cholesterol, this will affect my blood pressure, this will affect my diabetes. And, uh, you know, nothing, it, it's very hard to withstand those kind of temptations when they're right in front of you. And so I, I would... It's not just food items, right? It, like, what other temptations? Any kind of temptations. You know, I think there are all sorts of indulgences people engage in, which are just really hard to withstand and you know people generally have willpower and um, but if those if those opportunities present themselves repeatedly your willpower really gets worn down so i think that's just human nature you know we're we're most people do have their longer term selves have goals aspirations for how they'd like to behave but their shorter term self is often really influenced by what's right in front of them. So I'd put that as number one. Number two is, interestingly enough, we are often really influenced by small hurdles that stand in the way. So it may not seem like it should be a lot of effort for somebody to uh, pick up the phone to, let's say, make a doctor's appointment, but that small hurdle is often more of a barrier than one might think. So if, for example, the doctor's office called you and said, let's schedule your mammogram, you might be very happy and you would schedule it. But if it relies on you to call them, uh, there's all sorts of factors that creep in. Maybe some of it is inertia, some of it is fear, uh, some of it is you know, having a lot of other urgent issues in your day that are more pressing to deal with. And so that phone call doesn't get made today. And then, of course, the same thing's true tomorrow. So these these small hurdles are a really big barrier to change. Can I ask, um, is this an example of a similar hurdle, um, compliance with taking medications? If there's a pill you're supposed to take four times a day, uh, patients aren't as likely to comply uh, or follow the the prescription, whereas if there's a medication twice a day, much better compliance. People are much more likely to take it. 
Yeah, I would I would say that's definitely related to this notion of the more hurdles there are, the less likely it is for you to do something. There's, of course, if you have to take a medicine four times a day instead of three times or twice or once, then there's just more opportunities to forget. So mathematically, you're also more likely to be not fully adherent. But but I think the general principle here is very much operant when it comes to medication adherence, that the more hurdles there are, the more likely it is people don't follow the prescribed regimen. And so that can be in the form of how often you take the medication per day, how many days per week. There's obviously various formulations of medicines now where sometimes you can inject somebody and they only have to do that uh, every month or every three months. There's also the whole issue of when you get prescriptions, is the prescription written for 30 days? Is it written for 60 days? Is it written for 90 days? Uh, and do you get your refills automatically or do you have to remember to call them in? And it's amazing how much difference each of those potential friction points can make. I love it. I feel like I just learned a term, friction points. Okay, so I got you off track a little bit. Number three, if knowing full well there are many more than three. Yeah, I would probably list procrastination as number three. I think many, many people have good intentions for changing their behavior in the future. And when it comes to today, I'm weighing the immediate cost in terms of changing my behavior. So let's say I, I want to quit smoking and I know smoking is bad for me, that it increases my risk of heart disease, cancer, many other uh, things I'd, I'd rather not have. But when it comes to today, I'm thinking, gosh, I've tried this before and I'm going to have this awful nicotine withdrawal. I'm going to have a horrible headache. I'm going to really feel terrible. So maybe I'll just wait till tomorrow and tomorrow will be a better day to try this. And when I'm weighing the future, which I'm heavily discounting versus the present, which I'm not discounting, then the present almost always wins. And the problem, of course, is the calculation you made today will also apply tomorrow and the day after. And you could say the same thing about, for example, going on a diet or anything that involves giving up things that you value in the present, you enjoy in the present, or that without which you'd feel miserable. Uh, and that characterizes a lot of the challenges people have. And you could even think about, for example, starting a new exercise regimen. Eventually, it might feel great, but initially, it usually feels terrible. You know, you're not in shape, it doesn't feel good, it's painful. And so it's much easier to wait till tomorrow or next week to get started with that. And of course, your very rational self will conclude next week the same thing you concluded this week, that let's wait till next week. Yeah. The audience now feels tracing, very seen, based on what you've described in terms of human behavior. So um, fast forward, uh, we've graduated med school, you've completed your PhD and your internal medicine training. You are at the University of Pennsylvania, and you run the Chibe Lab. You have... Um, brought this to another level in terms of studying and in trying to understand human behavior. Tell the audience a little bit about CHIBE, what it stands for, and 30,000 foot view of what you're trying to do. Sure. 
Well, CHIPE is the Penn Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. We started in 2009, and It turns out that the University of Pennsylvania is amazingly fertile ground for creating an interdisciplinary research center that cuts across medicine and human behavior. There's really great colleagues here across different parts of the university, uh, ranging from the medical school to marketing at Wharton to uh, communications to psychology and the environment here is very collegial, so it's been really interesting uh, and really easy to engage faculty from different parts of the university who all are interested in both better understanding and trying to positively influence human behavior. So what Chibe tries to do is we're trying to uh, systematically apply insights from behavioral economics to try to both help people live healthier lives and try to improve the value of the money that gets spent in healthcare to improve health. And so there's a lot of projects that faculty are doing. There are about 100 faculty across the university who are engaged in various parts of CHIBE that are doing all sorts of interesting projects and everything ranging from opioid harm reduction to increasing use of inhalers among kids with asthma Uh, to trying to help people quit smoking and lots and lots of efforts to also improve uh, how clinicians behave in terms of uh, getting patients to a higher degree on various evidence-based therapies like cholesterol-lowering drugs or trying to get clinicians prescribed fewer opioids uh, and, you know, really trying to make the underlying incentives that exist in the system work better. What I really dig is you not only study human behavior looking at patients, but you also, what you just said, you're looking at clinicians and clinician behavior. Um, Let's go a little bit more granular with one, uh, specifically vaccination and motivators to vaccination vis-a-vis COVID-19 and influenza. Yeah, This is obviously a really important topic that's been very much on people's minds for the last couple of years. And it it was interesting looking at the arc of that. We've had faculty have worked on challenges around vaccination for many, many years, uh, but their work obviously has gotten a lot more attention in the last year and a half, two years. And in essence, what we saw with COVID was really interesting Initially, as, as we all know, there was a supply-demand mismatch, but demand actually way exceeded supply when fa- these highly efficacious vaccines were first made available and there were shortages. In the summer of 2021, we reached a different stage where suddenly supply really exceeded demand and there were a lot more vaccines available than people who wanted to use them. What happened next was really interesting from a public policy standpoint. I think a lot of states and certainly the federal government were very reluctant uh, to even think about using mandates. And so what happened was this interesting confluence of forces in a lot of different states, which led to the widespread use of financial incentives. And it was something unlike what we had ever seen before where a number of states were offering literally 
multiple million dollar lottery type prizes to people to get vaccinated. So for example, the state of Ohio ran a campaign where over a five week period, each week they would choose one person who'd been vaccinated over the age of 18 to get a million dollars. And if you were under 18, you would get a free college scholarship. And this was really quite remarkable because there had been a lot of work with financial incentives and health behavior in the past, which had been pretty effective in a lot of different contexts, but nobody had ever used incentives that were anywhere close to that magnitude. For example, when we did a lot of our uh, big studies on financial incentives and smoking cessation, we offered people $750. So this was a different ball game. But there are a couple of things I want to point out. Uh, one is that these tended to be lotteries where people had a chance at a million dollar prize. And while a million dollars obviously is a lot of money and got people's attention, the chance of winning uh, was probably in some of these bigger states something like one in 10 million. So the average expected value of the reward is actually 10 cents. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people, even though lotteries have been used in a number of interventions because people overestimate small probabilities, even if you overestimated the small probability by a factor of 10, uh, then your average winning would be a dollar, the expected value. Uh, or if you estimate, overestimated by 100, it'd still be only $10. So they were still very small incentives. And what, what we found uh, when we and others looked at what the results of these interventions were across the 24 or so states that tried them was that the incentives actually did not increase vaccination rates. And that was noteworthy. But I think in the context of the fact that this was at a stage of the pandemic where the people who had not been vaccinated felt pretty strongly in many cases about not getting vaccinated, uh, that plus the fact that the rewards were small magnitude helps to explain why the incentives didn't really work. I really love your share regarding this. And you actually answered one of my questions was, have we seen this before? And the answer is yes, we've seen this before, but not um, to this seeming extent or sort of, you know, potential reward to the person who decides to sign up and participate. And this leads me in to asking you a bit about the nudge unit, although I don't want to say that this was necessarily a nudge unit initiative that you just shared, but you also do work uh, with the nudge unit, and I must say that I really dig the name. And um, please tell the audience a little bit about that. Chibe, along with our sister center, the Penn Medicine Center for Healthcare Innovation, in 2016 created the Penn Medicine Nudge Unit. And at the time, it was the world's first health system-based nudge unit that was intended to use the principles of behavioral economics more systematically to think about how do we change clinical care, clinical care delivery. And we had a, an amazing first director of the nudge unit, a colleague named Mitesh Patel, who was in that role for about five years and really did a lot of amazing work um, in a number of areas. And I think one, one of the key things was really to think about how across our portfolio, both at the Nudge Unit and across Chive more broadly, on how do we 
use approaches other than financial incentives, because while financial incentives are important, certainly in the context of influencing patient care in healthcare delivery settings, it has never seemed likely that that was going to become widespread. Employers and insurers use financial incentives a lot because that's part of the nature of the interactions that employers have with their employees or health plans have with their members, but not so much in terms of healthcare delivery settings and patients. And so what Mitesh did was he, he led a, a number of different studies. So for example, with physical activity, there were a number of studies using financial incentives, but then he developed an approach um, that involved a number of us that used gamification and various forms of social accountability. And I thought this was really well done, where in essence what the team tried to do was to think critically about various concepts in behavioral economics and how do we use that to create a highly engaging approach to getting patients to become more physically active. So for example, one of the studies the group did was the first intervention study ever with the Framingham Heart Cohort. And the Framingham Heart Cohort is pretty famous in American medicine because a lot of our insights about cardiac risk factors and how they relate to cardiac outcomes and now over decades have come from that that group. But at the time, the cohort had never done an intervention study and they wanted to, to see, or could we do something that would help to lower people's risk as opposed to just observing what happens, but can we do this without introducing money? Because the cohort had very high rates of engagement and they were worried if they started paying people to do some things that might affect the underlying engagement adver- adversely. So anyway, so the the approach to gamification involved enrolling families in a game where, in essence, they all had various fitness trackers and they were endowed with a certain amount of status to begin with, which they could lose. Loss aversion is a very powerful concept in behavioral economics. Pause. Can you give us a a brief definition of loss aversion? Sure. Loss aversion just reflects the fact that People feel the pain of an equivalent dollar loss much more strongly than they feel the joy of an equivalent dollar gain. So typically in studies, there's a two to one ratio roughly of the disutility of a dollar lost versus the utility of a dollar gained. Thank you. So back to games, uh, fitness, and loss aversion. Okay. So picture you have a family. Uh, The family all participates in this cohort. And they're all enrolled in this game to get people to hopefully become more physically active. So the family starts out with some status. Um, So there's these different levels, like bronze, silver, gold, platinum. Uh, And you start in the middle, not at the bottom. So if you aren't physically active, then you actually lose status as opposed to having to work your way solely up from the bottom. Then each day... At random, a family member is chosen, and if they've met their step goals, then they get points. If they don't meet the step goals, then you start to lose points. And then over the course of the week, you either your status goes up or your status goes down. 
And the idea there is to use variable reinforcement. I never know if I'm going to be tomorrow, whether my number for today was going to be called. So I don't want to let my other family members, team members down. So there's a social accountability uh, component. And then there's also this notion of anticipated regret. So I can anticipate the regret I'd feel if I didn't today do meet my step goals and then tomorrow my number was called. So there's some simple concepts like that and basically it all runs on this platform. We developed a pen called Way to Health and it automatically records people's steps and gives them feedback. And what we found was that over a three-month period, this actually had a pretty big effect on people meeting their physical activity goals. I think it was roughly 53% in the intervention group versus 36% in the control group. And if you reached the top levels of status at the end of the study, you would get the grand prize, which was a coffee mug. So there's really no monetary gain. Uh, and since then, we've done a number of other studies which basically have refined the concepts further and tried to build on them in other contexts. I love this. And uh, I'm wondering if you can share with the audience, I've done a little bit of a deep dive into some of your work and publications around texting. And all of us, are, we're on our phones all the time, we text. And we've now gotten accustomed to receiving texts, for example, from the doctor's office, from the pharmacy, uh, a reminder to get a haircut. Have you in the Chibe group integrated texting, studying texting, and the effectiveness of texting into affecting human behavior? I mentioned a, a few minutes ago the Penn Way to Health platform, which David Ash and I and a group of others helped develop at Penn. And we have a terrific team that's led by Mohan Balachandran that has now supported nearly 300 studies uh, done by faculty not only at Penn, but at 20 other universities using this platform. And it's basically a way of automating the conduct of these behavioral trials where part of it is how we communicate with patients. And one of the things the team learned fairly early on is that rather than creating apps where there's a fair amount of work to a patient in trying to enter all their information before it even starts, it's often much more effective to just use bi-directional te texting. And there's a lot of different nuances to this which are important and probably the most important is to be very parsimonious in terms of the words, but also to be very aware of how choices are being framed to people and to always test, A-B testing of alternatives to try to figure out which is the most effective is probably one of the most important hallmarks of what our group writ large tries to do because sometimes intuition is only partly right. I, I would almost venture to say that most of the time intuition is only partly right. And ultimately what you want to know is what does the data tell you when you do these A-B tests, which is more effective. And, you know, in the old days, people used to just sit around a table and somebody would say, okay, here's what the message looks like. Here's the letter that will go out to everyone. And one of the things that behavioral scientists over the years have demonstrated over and over again is empirically testing alternatives and actually finding out which way of communicating is most effective is a much better way to go. Yeah. 
And I'm wondering the extent to which you design your trials in a human-centered, patient-centered way. Do you bring humans, the end user, into the room when you're designing? Yeah, we often get feedback from patients to try to make sure that what we think will work, uh, at least in their opinions, will work. And again, uh, though I, I would emphasize, always good to actually empirically test. So you definitely want to do what what we call stakeholder engagement and make sure that uh, it's not just our opinions that are driving things. You want to get as close as you can to the target audience, whether those are clinicians or patients. But again, always important to test and make sure that your your uh, what you think is effective is actually effective before you try to roll it out on a wider scale. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, you and I reconnected uh, in the setting of a medical school reunion, and we had planned to connect because we're both in Philadelphia. And a major life-changing event occurred. I'm going to have you describe that to the audience, and then we'll get into human behavior. So I, I had actually had a pretty healthy lifestyle. The American Heart Association has a uh, rubric they call Life Simple 7, and it looks at your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your smoking status, your diabetes, your weight, uh, physical activity, nutrition, and I think on all of those I had a perfect score, but unfortunately it appears I have a genetic propensity uh, to having cardiac events, and I was somewhat aware of that, but I didn't, of course, expect anything to happen. I'd never had any symptoms. I'd never had any problems. And in fact, I was training with one of my daughters for a 70.3 Ironman event. And I was probably in the best shape I'd been in since I was 25 at the time this happened. So we had ordered dinner and the food had arrived. And then reportedly, uh, and I say reportedly because I don't remember any of this myself, I keeled over and just was unresponsive. And this is where, of course, it often is helpful to be lucky. And I was very fortunate. I was with two uh, individuals, John White and Gina Stoker, who are my daughter's squash coaches. And Gina, according to my daughter, called 911 in less than 20 seconds. And John started CPR right away. He realized I didn't have a pulse and just went right to it. And then I was also lucky that I was in Cincinnati, which has very good EMS services, and I happened to be in a location that wasn't that far from EMS, so they were there in less than five minutes and got to work. Uh, it did take a little while to revive me, um, but they were successful. They had to shock me three times, and I didn't have a pulse for 14 minutes, so that's a little scary to think about. But they were able to revive me. They got me to the University of Cincinnati Hospital. I was also lucky that it's a, you know, an advanced hospital with very good emergency services, and which has a cath lab that's a really good cath lab. They got me to the cath lab. Uh, they found I had a blocked artery. They opened the artery, and then the recovery process started. It's a year later, and let's start first with your health and medically. How are you? Well, I, I, fortunately, I'm actually doing really well. I don't have any restrictions on my activity. I've had a couple of stress tests, which were totally normal at a high level of exertion. I've been cleared to basically do 
anything. Uh, and so I probably exercise an hour a day, maybe six days a week. And one thing I should say is that my doctors all credited the fact I was in such good physical shape with surviving the event last July and surviving it intact. Yeah. Integrating um, your behavior now uh, with sort of the behavioral economics that you've been studying, um, so sort of the head and the heart, how have you integrated those two? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I was, before this event happened, I was already leading an initiative for Penn Medicine on heart attack risk reduction. So I will say I've definitely redoubled my efforts and you know, feel a, a sense of personal connection to this that's deeper than what I felt before. And, you know, and I, I think it's been somewhat galvanizing for the whole team. I, everyone obviously knows what happens. Uh, unfortunately, cardiac arrest is a pretty common occurrence in the United States. There's more than 400,000 per year. And in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, more than 90% or about 90% of people die. So many people know of others who have had cardiac arrests, and many of them haven't had good outcomes. So I think there's a very high level of motivation to try to do what we can to shift some of the paradigm towards preventing cardiac events. Uh, I think we in general, have a healthcare system that does a good job of reacting when people have an event and trying to pull out all the stops to save them. But what we're trying to do in the initiative that we're running at Penn Medicine is to become much better at systematically identifying people who are at high risk and then intervening to try to lower their risk so they never have a cardiac event in the first place. What a great conversation. And before I tell you my Risa wrap-up, here's a word about the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hi, this is Mike Pratz from the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Gel stands for Gathering Evidence from the Literature. In each episode, we closely examine the latest research in the field of point-of-care ultrasound. Our goal is to make this information easily digestible for clinicians so that we can all use this valuable modality safely to help our patients. The Risa wrap-up. Well, I am so glad that Kevin is okay and that he has his health and he's back to living his life, doing his thing. I told Kevin this and I asked him if it's okay to say it. I am super proud of him, super proud of the work of the Chibe Lab, the Nudge Unit, and all his other work. I really find his interest in human behavior super interesting. How do we affect change? How do we motivate people to not smoke tobacco? How do we motivate people to move, to exercise, to think interestingly about the caloric intake, to think about their BMI? Kevin doesn't just focus on the patient and human behavior. He actually focuses also on the clinician. What can we do to motivate people to take their medicine, to make their doctor's appointment? All these things are the work that Kevin and his lab are doing. See you next week. Thanks for joining. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. 
I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>